Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Psalm 1.1. The title of the sermon for today is The Three. The Three. It's not always easy for me to decide what to preach about, um, to ascertain what the Lord would have me to speak on. And you, all of you who have spoken in public, I think most, if not all of us that have spoken in public know that feeling at least a little bit. For me, it's been especially uh, difficult recently for some reason. And I say thank you for you folks for praying for your pastors even thank you for praying that the Lord would make his will known on what should be spoken about, subject and text and those kind of things. It seems to me that I am kind of weak on preaching on the New Testament and on theology and on teaching portions and that kind of thing. It's more natural for me to talk about stories and, to, uh, and especially from the Old Testament, stories that I think that we can learn from. And so it just seemed that it would really be time for me to talk about something uh, New Testament teaching. There was a couple of possibilities I thought about in the epistles, but then again... Um, John Lewis is preaching through the book of Ephesians and we just had the book Ephesians in Sunday school and Chris spoke so well about the book of Ephesians in our summer Bible school and Dave of course is preaching through 1 Peter and I could talk about something in the Gospels perhaps, but we're in the book of Mark there. So as I think about the book of Ephesians and the things that Chris shared in summer Bible school, I appreciated how that he emphasized about words that are repeated, words that are emphasized, how that's meaningful for Bible study and Bible understanding. And I thought it was interesting that there was a number of words and phrases like that that he hadn't touched, and one of them was the word rich. Now, Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, entitled the book, Be Rich. And that word or a form of the word, rich or riches, is given six times in the book of Ephesians, I believe. So that was something that kind of stood out to me. And another thing that I remember about the book of Ephesians is that when I was a very young man, uh, there was older people in our church that spoke about a book, a commentary on the book of Ephesians called, uh, and it was by Watchman Nee, and the title is Sit, Walk, Stand. Sit, Walk, Stand. Uh, Ephesians 2.6 says that we are, uh, are, 
We sit together in heavenly places. Uh, a number of places in the book of Ephesians, maybe six or seven or eight times, it talks about our walk. And then Ephesians 6, uh, the portion that you just read, Glenn, three times the word stand is given there. Sit, walk, stand. I, I kind of especially remember, for some reason, Jake Diener talking about that book. Maybe, John, you lap too. I'm not sure. Sit, walk, stand. So while thinking of our Sunday school lesson a couple weeks ago in, about the Christian armor in Ephesians 6, I read a commentary from John Phillips who said that he suggests that the best commentary on Ephesians 6 and the Christian armor is 2 Samuel 23. So... Thinking of all that made me think that, well, maybe, just maybe the Lord would have me to talk about soldiers and warfare like Ephesians 6 and also talk about uh, that commentary of that in 2 Samuel 23. So if you would turn to 2 Samuel 23, we'd like to be looking at a few things there today, in verse, especially verses 8 through 17. As I think of warfare and soldiering and those kind of things, it's very and wonderfully obvious in the New Testament um, that Paul and all the gospel writers, all the New Testament writers, uh, deplored bloodshed and physical fighting and resistance to evil. But that didn't keep Paul from... from um, making analogies of the physical soldier's life to our spiritual life. It, it's a fight. It's a battle. Ephesians 6, the passage that we just read, and 1 Timothy 2, and other places as well, where Paul makes comparisons of the, of the physical soldier to our spiritual fight, our spiritual life. I thank God for the teaching in the New Testament. It's so clear and plain, isn't it, that we are not to resist um, other people, but that God calls Christians in this church age to non-resistance, not resisting others, but letting that to the Lord. And, you know, our enemies are not each other. Our enemies are not other people or circumstances or anything like that. But the three enemies that we face are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I thought of that certainly this morning, Ivan, as you uh, gave that good devotional. So we have the privilege as Christian soldiers to be non-resistant to evil and, and other people but direct our fighting and our battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not other people, but our three real enemies. And that, just one example of that that I think about is, I remember reading about an Amish or a Mennonite bishop in Somerset County who lived maybe 100 years ago. He, he was a farmer, and he noticed that some of his corn is getting away. Someone was stealing his corn. 
And he had some thoughts about who that might have been. And he could have reacted harshly. He could have reacted and gone and talked to that. He, he could have been resistant in his approach. But instead of that, after he thought about it for a while, what he did was took some nails and hammered them into the edge or into the end of the corn co- of some corn cob. After that, after he had done that for a while and added them to the pile, corn cobs with nails at the end. He visited some of his neighbors, neighboring farms, and sure enough, at one of those, he saw some corn cobs with nails in it, with nails in them. And so he told the neighbor, you know, some of my corn cobs have nails in them too. And two things happened after he had done that and said that. Two things happened. Number one, the thievery stopped. There was no more, he, nobody stole any more corn cobs. And number two, his friendship with his stealing neighbor um, stayed in place and was intact. That, that was a wonderful way of being non-resistant. And I think that that Amish person or Mennonite person um, had on the full armor of God as he did all of that. All right, 2 Samuel 23. Uh, David, nearing the end of his life, wants us to know and lists a lot of his uh, underlings or sidekicks. Not a very good way of saying it. Um, David, nearing the end of his life, wants us to understand that the success that he had in life as, oh, as a warrior and as a king and as the man after God's own heart was that he had other people surrounding him and helping him. And he lists, I think, 37 names here. Second Samuel 23 beginning at verse 8 and going on to the end of the chapter. Pretty interesting, right? In the U.S. Marine Corps, which is some of the most elite, apparently, soldiers in the U.S. military, um, do you know what their motto is? I've seen it on bumper stickers and that kind of thing. The U.S. Marine Corps, the... Their motto is Semper Fi, and that is Latin for always faithful. These people, uh, these special forces that David wants us to know about, I think they could be called Israel's Marines. Semper Fi, they were always faithful. And, and this list that David catalogs for us here shows the very best of the very best and the finest of the finest and the bravest of the brave these 37 and noticing just a little bit closer there there's a list of 30 and there's a list of 3 and then another 3 there's the 30 there's the second group of 3 and then there's the 3 the title of the sermon the 3 
And we'd just like to look at those three uh, just a little bit. Uh, first, we'd like to look at Adino the Esnite in verse 8, and then Eliezer the son of Dodo in verses 9 and 10, maybe a little bit longer. And then also uh, Shammah the son of Ag the Hararite, spoken of in verses 11 and 12, and probably we'll talk about him longer than the other two. He's my favorite of the three. And then, um, as a closing, we'd just like to talk a little bit more about the three and the 30, about their backgrounds, what motivated them, and that kind of thing. So, Adina the Esnite, you may not have heard of him before. Uh, We don't know much about Adina, except what is... We really know hardly anything except what is given in 1 Samuel 23, 8. And notice that he was chief among the captains. He had attained that highest recognition or honor. He was, I think, chief of the three. And no wonder. He was certainly a successful warrior. Um, He left up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Notice that not only that he was chief of the captains, but that he also sat in the seat. wonder what that means. The the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, uh, that could mean something like maybe he was vice president. David was the president. David was the king. Maybe maybe Adino was first in line for the kingship. Um, Or maybe he would be like maybe chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or something like that. He sat in the seat. He was chief among the captains and he sat in the seat. We, we're not so sure about all what seat that was, but we noticed that it was a place of great honor and responsibility and respect. Um, biblically, I think sitting, sitting, often has to do with two things. It has to do with authority. Often in Scripture it talks about the king sitting on his throne and it speaks of authority and power. And I, I think we can see that there with Adino. Secondly, sitting obviously has to do with resting, doesn't it? We sit down. I think for Adino, both of those were in view and it makes me think about someone else that sat down In Scripture, remember Hebrews 1, uh, maybe verse 3. Jesus sat down. He sat down. And when he sat down, I think it's it's mostly speaking about his authority, right? He sat down in his place of authority, but maybe some of it had to do with him resting as well. And that brings us back to Ephesians 2.6. How about God's children in the 21st century? Well, we sit in heavenly places. Thank God that we sit in heavenly places. I think it mostly has to do with rest, but maybe a little bit of a, as authority as well. Mostly rest. Uh, isn't it wonderful how that we who are his can rest. We sit in heavenly places. We're not in heaven yet, but we're, we sit in heavenly places. It's all because of what Jesus has done for us. And let me 
read from this book, Sit, Walk, Stand, that I referred to by Watchman Nee. This is what he says about sitting. The Christian life from start to finish is based upon this principle of utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus. There is no limit to the grace God is willing to bestow upon us. He will give us everything, but we can receive none of it except as we rest in him. Sitting is an attitude of rest. Something has been finished, work stops, and we sit. It is paradoxical, but true, that we only advance in the Christian life as we learn, first of all, to sit down. What does it really mean to sit down? When we walk or stand, we bear on our legs all the weight of our own body. But when we sit down, our entire weight rests upon the chair or couch in which we sit. We grow weary when we walk or stand, but we feel rested when we have sat down for a while. In walking or standing, we expend a great deal of energy, but when we are seated, when we are seated we relax at once because the strain no longer falls upon our muscles and nerves, but, something, but upon something outside of ourselves. So also in the spiritual realm, to sit down is simply to rest our whole weight, our load, ourselves, our future, everything upon the Lord. We let him bear the responsibility and cease to carry it ourselves. Sit, walk, stand, Ephesians, New Testament. And then we see an example of that in this commentary in 2 Samuel 23 with Adino the Esnite. Let's talk then about Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahoite, verses 9 and 10. And I would call him, if Adino speaks of victory over danger, then we could also say that Eliezer reminds us of victory over desertion or deserting. Um, do you see that other people deserted him? Last phrase of, of verse 9. Discouraging, isn't it? The men of Israel were going away. Victory over danger, Adino the Esnite, but Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahoite, well, danger is bad enough, but Eliezer experienced danger because of other people deserting him. And we could ask the question, why do you think everyone else left him? I'm only guessing. I think maybe that the others thought it's not worth the fight. They preferred ease and comfort and convenience rather than putting up a fight for what was right. The other way of saying that is they kind of preferred defeat over victory. Makes me think of the man Demas in the New Testament. Remember him? He had such a good start, but then Paul later wrote, Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world. And as we think about the people that deserted Eliezer, and as we think about Demas, we should certainly think about ourselves, shouldn't we? I think about me. You think about you. Um, how about it? Are, do we prefer ease and don't even mind 
because we're so lackadaisical, don't mind not having the victory? Or are we the Eliezer kind of person? Um, humor me just a little bit here, please. But don't you think that the second word in verse 10, that verb there, he arose, he arose, that speaks of, I think, of walking. Um, Adino is a type of, of sitting. Remember the, the word there? And we'll get to Shama in a little while. He is a picture of third ver- word in verse 12. He's a picture of standing. Sit, walk, stand. The Christian life consists of sit, sitting in heavenly places, in walking, and in standing and defending God that way. So we're thinking, uh, I, I like to think that Eliezer is a picture of walking and progressing in the battle of life. Eliezer, I think it's obvious that he was familiar with his sword. And he was, had confidence in his sword as he walked into that battle that day. I suspect that he took good care of that sword, keeping it sharp and maybe oiled. And I would just guess that he practiced with that sword quite a lot and had experience beforehand, before that battle that day, verses 9 and 10. And so he walked into that battle, the battle raged, and his hand became so tired and weary, and as victory neared, as he fought, and as his hand got so tired, and as, vic- as he was within reach of victory, Eliezer and his sword became one. Do you see that? His hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. He couldn't have left go of his sword if he wanted to. Eliezer and his sword were one. And I'm hoping that even before I talk about it, you're thinking about your sword. You have one, right? Um, you can look in Ephesians 6:17 if you are wondering a bit about your sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is our sword. The Word of God is our sword. And when we are one with the Word of God, victory is assured. Just like the picture of Eliezer in the Old Testament, so we living in New Testament times, when we're one with the Word, how would one be one with the Word? Well, be familiar with the Word, right? Read it. Study it. It would include um, obeying the Word, surely, wouldn't it? To be one with the Word, one has to obey the commands. Easy. I think there's something beyond that, beyond knowing the Word and obeying the Word, and I think that's loving the Word of God. Eliezer, I think, is a wonderful picture of knowing the Word and obeying the Word and loving the Word of God with all his heart. As I think about that, um, I, I think of back years ago, one year when I was teaching at Calvary Bible School, one of the teachers um, 
in an evening chapel was talking about what kind of legacy would you like after your death? What, what would you want people to say about you after you're gone? How, how would you like to be remembered? And different of the men gave different thoughts. Oh, like um, godly or honest or those kind of things, kind. And all of those are good. And then one person said he would like to be remembered as a biblicist. And I just kind of thought and still think that that was the best answer. To be a biblicist, to be an Eliezer, one with the, with the sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No difference between, or there's no disconnection between ourselves and knowing, obeying, and loving God's Word. I think Eliezer teaches us, even way back in the Old Testament here in a kind of a forgotten corner of the Old Testament at that, that when victory is to be gained, it will be when we are one with the Word. And I challenge you and challenge myself, if it seems like victory in the Christian life is elusive, could it be, because, could it be, I think it could be that it's because I, that because we are not at one with the Lord. Maybe we don't know the Word of God well enough. Maybe we're not obeying it well enough. Maybe we're not loving it like we should. Where did this battle take place? That day when Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. Where was that? Well, we can learn from a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 11, 13, and 14. Verse 13. That it was at a place, the battle took place in, a, in Pastamon. I don't know if I pronounced that right. But I noticed a couple sources that said that Pastamon is in the valley of Elah. Does that tell you anything? Does, does that sound familiar? Uh, um, did anything else ever happen at the, in the valley of Elah? Can you answer that question, Glenn? He didn't say it very loud, but yep. I remember a sermon that Glenn preached about 1 Samuel 17 when David taught, uh, fought Goliath. That was in the valley of Elah. Isn't that something? So here we are back in the same place. So Israel had returned to the place of past victory to face that same old foe again, those Philistines. So there had been victory, but then there was a threat again. Does that seem like anything that happens in our day? Well, if your life is like mine, um, we can relate to that. You can relate to that. Because victory one day doesn't assure victory at the same place and the same issue the next day or week or month. 
But Eliezer and his victory teaches us that there's always victory available when we are one with the Word. And before we leave Eliezer, I would just want to say that every, all the people had deserted him, right? He... But... Again, First Chronicles in the parallel passage certainly indicates, if I understand the Bible right, that David was there. So that it was actually not just Eliezer, but it was David and Eliezer fighting the Philistines that day. So Eliezer hadn't been abandoned and deserted by everyone, but his commander was there. And in the same, in a similar way, we today are assured because of New Testament truth that our commander never leaves us or forsakes us. And when we are fighting alongside him, their victory is assured. Thank God for that. So we've talked about Adino, victory over danger, and we've spoken about Eliezer, victory over desertion. Now let's talk about Shammah, the son of A.G., the Hararite, victory over discouragement. Do you see discouragement there? At the end of verse 11, I think it's pretty plain to me, and the people fled from the Philistines. Danger is bad enough. Danger because everybody deserts you is even worse. But danger because people have deserted you and because of the discouragement that creeps in because of that is worse yet. So that was what Shammah was fighting against this, that day. Not only the Philistines, but discouragement as well. People fled. Everyone else was discouraged and had left the scene. Soldiers, I think, and their commanders know full well, both from I think instinctively and um, the military would teach this, that when you're outnumbered and are in danger of defeat, you have two options open to you generally. Number one is retreat. Hopefully in an organized, in orderly fashion so that the retreat doesn't become a stampede and everybody panics and loses, runs, hopefully just a slow retreat. The second, the second possibility, the second option would be moving the place of the battle um, and gain a position where the terrain is more advantageous to oneself. You know, like going up on a high ridge where everybody has to come uphill to get you or going to the uh, mouth of a cave where everything is narrow and, and try to turn the terrain into an advantage for yourself. So you have those two options. And which did Shammah do of those two options that day? Well, neither of them, right? He, instead of retreating, he didn't do that. Neither did he move to a place that was more advantageous. But he stood... Oh, yeah, sit, walk, stand. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. He stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. All of that makes me think about 
what was happening um, just west of here, about 60 miles, 160 years ago, last evening and overnight and this morning. 160 years ago yesterday, uh, west of Gettysburg, the contingents of the Union and the Confederates met and they fought through the day and the Confederate soldiers who had invaded the North pushed the Union back so that they retreated through the town of Gettysburg and headed south of town to um, high ridges and hills from Culp's Hill kind of in a fish hook all the way down to Little Round Top, I think it was. So they, they did both. They retreated and they went to a ground that was more advantageous. And it's a little bit simplistic to say, but it is correct, I think, to say that one of the reasons that the Union was able to win that battle was because they got to the high ground. But again, Eliezer wasn't concerned about that. He decided that he's going to fight right where the was. He wasn't moved. He stood there. And you can imagine that the terrain there was not good. The situation wasn't good. Probably we can guess that it was a pretty flat field, so the enemy could, uh, could come in from him from all sides. There was no cover there beyond however high the beans were, I guess. And also, you would stand, pun intended, you would stand a good chance to trip up in the vines and in the vegetation there. But that's what Shammah did. He didn't move. He didn't retreat. He didn't move. Why do you think that was? Well, in trying to answer that question, Jerry DePoy suggests three reasons. And he just, and we're not going to talk about that more except to say that Mr. DePoy says it could have been three reasons. It was probably his field. And so he wasn't going to move from his field. Number two was that it was his food. And number three was that it was for his family. If he moves from this field, then the family has no food and the family will be impoverished. Um, Ray Pritchard, in trying to answer the question, why was he so unmoved? Why did he just stand there even though everything was against him? Uh, Ray Pritchard, who was helpful in a number of points here in this uh, passage says this, there are many possible answers to that question. The question is why. There are many possible answers, but I favor this one. I think Shammah stood and fought because he knew if he gave up the bean field, he'd have to fight the Philistines later anyway. The more territory you give up now, the more you're going to have to take back later. Somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, you've got to stop retreating. Sooner or later, you've got to join the battle. Why not here? Why not now? If they take the bean field, pretty soon they'll go after the barley. If they take the barley, they'll also take the corn. 
If they take the corn, they'll come after sheep. Once they have the sheep, they'll slaughter the cattle. Philistines aren't nice people, and they attack and attack until someone starts to fight back. And we would say, Satan isn't a nice person, and we can depend on him to attack and attack. But thank God for that great victory that was won that day. And let's see, who won the victory that day? Last phrase in verse 12. And the Lord wrought a great victory. Thank God for the victory that Jesus brings. We hadn't even mentioned, as we talked about Eliezer, but there was a phrase there that we should highlight right now. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day. Verse 10. Thank God for the victory that overcometh the world. The world and the flesh and the devil. Adino the Esnite. Eliezer the son of Dodo the Ehoite. Shammah the son of Ag the Hararite. The three. Now, as we kind of move toward closing just a little bit, we should talk about the backgrounds of these people. And we're not only talking about the three, but the 37, the 30, the 37. Their backgrounds were lowly. Isn't that something? These were mighty men of valor, but they had come from a low place and had grown and experienced and were now mightily valiant. But they were lowly. And if you have any questions about that, just look at 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. That verse says that these people that surrounded David, they were either in distress or they were in debt or they were discontented. Three Ds there in the King James. Now, if you'd have to say about yourself, what would you say? Are you in distress today? Or are you in debt? Or are you discontented? Well, it doesn't matter which of those three you are. Um, Do like they did. Come to David. Come to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus himself. So their backgrounds were lowly. And they were also varied. There is... We notice um, the last one that's mentioned, 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, we know about him. He wasn't naturally born Jew. He was a Hittite. So there was different nationalities and places and families, of course, that these mighty men came from. They were varied. And I appreciate what um, a commentary, the pulpit commentary says on that story, uh, on that theme. You know, all of us here are different. And you might fight differently than I. But God has made us just right. And the call is for us to be faithful in fighting how the Lord would have us. Here's the quote. Some owe their preeminence in part to physical peculiarities. Others are great in spite of theirs. Some have the might of intellect. Others of heart. Some, the power of inflexible determination. Others, of gentleness and tenderness. Some conquer by intense activity. Others, by passive endurance or quiet influence. Some are powerful through their ability to attract and lead numbers. Others, acting alone. 
The special sphere of some is the home, of others the church, of others the factory, the workplace, or the public meeting. Some are mighty in argument, others in appeal, some in instructing other, some in instructing, others in consoling. End of quote. So their backgrounds, they were lowly and they're varied. Mm -hmm. A little bit like us here today, right? Lowly and varied. Finally, what was the motivation for all this bravery that was going on with Adino and Eliezer and Shammah and the other 34 mighties? What, what was the... Why did they do it? What was their motivation? There was something about David that was so winsome. He was the man after God's own heart. There was something about David that drew, just drew people around him. That, I think, was the motivation. They loved David. They trusted David. David was their savior. They had no hope without David. All they were was a bunch of lowly people in distress or, or in debt or discontented. Uh, there was no, nothing uh, fulfilling in life until they came to David and they became mighty men of valor through that. That's how we are, right? More love to thee, O David. Oh, no. More love to thee, O Lord, we sang this morning. Are greater than David. It, it wasn't, and we didn't even get around to talking about the well. We didn't get around to talking about verses 13 through 17. You study that for yourself. Um, but yes, the key to their the three and the 37s, the key to their might and to their victory was because they surrounded themselves with David. The key for us here today, clear and plain, from this commentary of Ephesians 6 in 2 Samuel 23 is that when we come to the greater than David, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he can turn lowly, insignificant, defeated people into mighty men of valor, a little bit like Adino or Eliezer or Shammah. Will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament. I thank you for every part of your word, and as we think of 2 Samuel 23 just now, we thank you for uh, what one can learn of, spiritual, of Christian life and of handling, uh, equipping ourselves with all the, the whole armor of God. I pray that that would indeed be the case for each of us, Heavenly Father. I pray that as we equip ourselves with the armor of God, that you would lead us and teach us and help us on to victory after victory after victory, and finally that ultimate victory all through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all of that. Thank you for the privilege of being together like this. None of us are like Eliezer in that everyone else has abandoned us, abandoned us, but we are part of the body. And I pray that together, together, Heavenly Father, um, many victories can be won, whether that's victories in our church and in our communities and in our circles, or whether it's in larger circles like all the folks at Camp Andrews, the campers at Camp Andrews this last week, or whether it's people in Belize. I pray for um, the Kaufmans as they head back to Belize tomorrow, Daniel and Sarah, and pray your grace and peace and power upon them as they and we together um, fight those battles faithfully that you have arranged for us till you come to take us home. In Jesus' name, amen.